First thing I want to say is thank you very much for having me. My name is Rodney Ashlock, and I uh, teach Bible at Abilene Christian University. I also preached for over 20 years at a church in Abilene, Texas, uh, the Westgate Church of Christ. So if you have any familiarity with Abilene uh, and some of the churches or congregations there, they put up with me from 1998 on a part-time basis, and then from 1999 to last September, uh, they let me preach there week after week after week. And I can see that that you are a wise church. One of the first things I always look at is, do you have a clock in the back? Uh, do you let the preacher know? Uh, I don't know if you're as wise as Westgate was. They had a designated person. There's an older gentleman uh, who I gave him the title. He was the keeper of the clock. That was his official role. He embraced that role. Uh, and uh, he would sometimes uh, stand up when he was able to do so, and he would point to the clock. I mean, he literally did these things to me. He would do a little motion there. It's kind of time to do that. He also had another motion uh, that he would do. If he didn't feel like getting up, sometimes he would lift his arm up and point to his watch. He did this little numbers. I, I, I am not lying. Uh, and then when he was really, really serious, he would do this. Uh, basically telling me it's time to shut up uh, and sit down. So I see you guys have the clock. I don't know if you have appointed somebody as the official keeper of the clock or not. Uh, but it's always good to be able to travel, to be with the Lord's people, and to be able to see and participate in worship in a variety of places here. And I'm grateful uh, that you're putting up with me today. Uh, to understand this first little story, I need to do a little bit of a back story for you here. Uh, my granddad was one of three boys. My dad was one of three boys. I was one of three boys. So in this little family line, we had a run of nine straight boys. We didn't know if we were capable of even having little girls or not. So I got married, and we had our first child. And guess what? We had a boy. Ten straight boys. Then we had a second child. And finally, we broke the mold and had a little girl. Now... You can imagine being a little girl born into a family that thought the only thing that they could ever have was boys. This little girl, my daughter, she was a princess from the moment she was born. And I had two brothers. And one time we were all gathered together in my folks' house. And my parents had one of these tables that sat in the middle of the living room. And it was probably about, you know, a little over knee high to a, an adult. But for her, she was at that stage where they're starting to crawl and they can pull themselves up. Right, you familiar with that little stage where children can now, they can grab onto something and, you know, with a little bit of strength, a little bit of effort, they can pull themselves up. And in this little table, my uh, daughter was crawling around and here's all the grown-ups and everybody else uh, taking a look. And she grabbed the top of it and she pulled herself up and boop, up popped her head. And she could see the room. And uh, her legs are doing this little number. You know, you can't quite stand on her own. So we're doing this little bobbing, and so we're hanging on. And uh, she about fell. And when she about fell, she reached out one of her hands to steady herself, and she slapped the table. And that made a little noise. 
probably louder than she thought, so she, her little face did this, and all these men, all right, a grandfather, her dad, these uncles, everybody else, we all reacted. <gasps> Big faces there, and her face just lit up. I mean, she understood very quickly that she was the entertainment, and that we were all watching her, and that we adored every little thing that she did. So if it worked once, why not twice, right? And so now she's doing this on purpose, and she slaps the table again. This time probably a little harder for a little bit more effect. And my wife, who's also sitting there, is looking at her mother-in-law. You know, you're always kind of concerned about your know, mother-in-law for her. And uh, she's getting a little concerned because Bonnie is slapping the table. And she says, no, no, don't slap the table. My daughter didn't understand what no, no meant. Uh, and all these men are adoring her, and I don't think she liked what her mother had to say to her. And so she pauses a little bit here, a little confused and everything else, and then the legs start bobbing again, and uh, she reaches out, and a third time she slaps that little table. Now, the men don't know quite what to do because, well, she is a little princess and, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to kind of hold and hide the smile and everything else because she wasn't supposed to do that that time there. Uh, but it is still kind of humorous, but my wife knew what to do and she swooped down, picked her up, and they had a little come to Jesus meeting in the room uh, down the hallway there. And my brother, who was always really good with words and little expressions, looked over at me, and by the way, he absolutely adores his niece. Never had any children of his own. He loves, worships the ground she walks on. But he knew enough to say this. She's good. She ain't all good. <laughs> and I've thought about that little story a lot. And that little phrase, because it really is the truth. Every single one of us in here is good, but none of us is all good. And that's the story. Uh, you see it kind of playing out in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8 has this famous scene, the one that we love to kind of put into pictures. If there's a movie about Jesus, it's always in the movie there, but it's the woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, and you know the story, I'm not going to repeat the story here, but there's this woman brought before Jesus and she's got all of her accusers around her uh, and she's uh, kind of lying there before Jesus and then these two statements. And what I find interesting is that for most of us, we will always kind of land on one of two statements. But one of the things that Jesus says to her uh, when he looks around and all the accusers have dropped their rocks and everybody has left her alone here, uh, one of the statements is, uh, is anybody here left to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And a lot of us really like those words. And these words get you know, quoted in a lot of different contexts. Where we like to say, well, you shouldn't judge somebody. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So uh, there is no condemnation. All these little things that come together here. But Jesus also said, go and sin no more. He said two things. He didn't just say one and omit the other. And as human beings, what we tend to do is land on one or the other. 
For us as people, we tend to be either or. We tend to think this way here, uh, and we think in either or terminology here. And so for many of us, we know one of those phrases, but we don't really know the other one. And you can take your pick which one you know and which one you like and which one you don't know so much and which one you don't like. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus said both. He said both. And he didn't mess up. Because just like my little girl, she's good, she ain't all good. We all need to hear the words, neither do I condemn you, but we also need to hear the words, go and sin no more. Both of those statements are true. And both of those statements are words and phrases that we have to hear and incorporate into our stories. Jesus doesn't condemn us, but Jesus also tells us, go and sin no more. Both are true. And really, Jesus is just echoing Scripture. Uh, you got a problem on your hands today because uh, I teach primarily Old Testament courses. All right, so I hear the groans already coming out here. And we're going to do a quick little survey. We're not going to stay long here, but I do want to do a quick little survey of some passages from Scripture and a way that they show us sort of the both and nature of ourselves as human beings. All right, so on the one hand, there is this sort of uh, pessimistic strain that runs through Scripture. So you get a passage like the one in the book of Ecclesiastes, which says, there's no one on earth, no one, who is so righteous that they've never sinned. Nobody. And you can go start going, you're running through the whole thing here and looking around and nobody's going to qualify who all the time does only good. I like that little phrase, no one on earth. So we're looking amongst ourselves here. Nobody is so good that they've never sinned. So we can sort of get down on ourselves and sort of beat ourselves up a little bit here and kind of talk and think about ourselves in very... But the Bible also says in Genesis chapter 1 that we are all created in the image of God. Male and female. Every single one of us sitting in this room here today were created in the image of God. But we're also not so righteous as to do good all the time without sinning. Or how about the book of Jeremiah? You can turn over to Jeremiah chapter 10 and uh, look at verse 14, and it talks about another big human tendency. Uh, here, so we're talking about a specific group, those who make idols. But you know, last time I've checked, we're all pretty good about making idols. You know, the Olympics are going on right now. Uh, and it's kind of fun to watch them and appreciate, but you know, it doesn't take much for this to bleed over into a form of idolatry. Or a favorite musician. Or a business icon. Somebody who has this great piece of software and can do all kinds of things with computers and make all kinds of billions of dollars. And we very quickly find ourselves groppling and bowing down at their feet and saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. We're pretty good at making idols ourselves. We do this. But at the same time, I can go over to Psalm 8, and what does it tell me? 
Well, that human beings are not God, and they're a little bit low, but also they've been crowned with glory and honor. It's true. Everybody sitting in this room here today has been crowned with glory and honor. But we tend to take that crown and put it on something else's head, something other than God. We tend to be idolaters. Or how about Psalm 14? Pretty negative little verse there. So if you look over there, Psalm 14, 3, on that pessimistic strain, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's pretty negative, isn't it? But at the same time, there's also Psalm 139, where we are reminded, every single one of us sitting in here, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The truth is, we are not either or creatures. We are both and. We're good, we're just not all good, as Scripture reminds ourselves. And that's what we need to hear, because our tendency is to latch on to one or the other. You know, you know the people, and sometimes Christians get accused of this, of kind of talking about sin all the time and how we're always sinners and sort of accentuating the negative. But then it doesn't take very long to get out there and uh, there will be folks who are saying that, you know, you're really a good person, uh, that uh, you have everything you need within you. You just got to kind of tap into uh, all your... It, the truth of the matter is not quite so simple. And Paul picks up on that in the book of Romans. And he has a verse in chapter 3, uh, verse 10, which is kind of similar to Psalm 14.3, only it's even more negative. And this is after two plus chapters. For two chapters, what Paul has been trying to say, and the point Paul wants to make is we are all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Every single human being who has ever been born is in the same boat. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who is understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. No one shows kindness. There is not even one. This is the human plight. And nobody is exempt. It's actually kind of good news. Because now all of a sudden we begin to realize that we as human beings are not the solution. There is another solution. And here's the good news. The first line picks up on what I just said back in verses 10 and 11. Pretty negative, right? All have sinned. And for those of us who have grown up in churches of Christ, we know that first line very well, don't we? But do we know the second line? You see, that's the story. And so often we hear one half, but we don't pay attention to the other half. We like one verse. We don't like the next one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. And all are justified by the grace through the redemption uh, that came by Christ Jesus. So there is the first part and the one that you may have heard quoted over and over and over again. But there's also the second part. And this second part tells us that God's done something. Something that we human beings can't really do, we can't accomplish, because yes, we are all created in the image of God. Yes, we are crowned with glory and honor. Yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
but we also had to tend to have a lot of problems. But the good news is, God said, I'm going to do something about it. And we get all kinds of fancy schmancy religious words, justified, grace, redeemed. God took something that was over here and reclaimed it for himself. And that something that was over there that God has reclaimed for himself is you. Or better put, us. Probably ought to think in plural terms rather than singular terms. Get ourselves into a habit of saying we a lot more than I. Because God took you, who was over here, in bondage and brought you out of that bondage. But you didn't do it all by your lonesome. Because it was done through grace and the redemption took place in Christ Jesus. And there's a little process going on. The book of Romans, uh, it's hard to read. It's a very dense book. There's a lot of things going on. But I'm going to highlight just a few verses that sort of take us, propel us through the book a little bit here. In chapter 5, all right, there's this process. Do I have some athletes? Do I have anybody who would claim to be at least remotely athletic? Anybody in high school athletics? And you'll hear coaches and you'll get on websites, you know, the, the process, right? The grind. You've got to trust the process. Well, there's a process. And Paul talks about that throughout the book of Romans. And you've got to trust it. And that process is, first of all, you were alienated. Back when you were enemies of God, guess what happened? You were reconciled. You know what the word reconciliation, that's another one of those fancy schmancy kind of religious jargon kind of terms, right? What is reconciliation? Well, it ties back to alienation. Now, I would imagine we all have a family member in here. Everybody has a family, right? And everybody's got at least one family member who might not be welcome at the family reunion. Maybe you've even got more than one family member. What that means is you're alienated from that member of your family. You're estranged. It might have been your choice. It might have been their choice. It really doesn't matter whose choice it was, to quote John Wayne. It doesn't really matter whose fault that it is. You're alienated and you're estranged. Reconciliation is to take that family member and get them back in and have them be at the family reunion. Reconciled. Here's the deal. We were alienated from God. If you don't believe me, just go read Genesis 3 sometime. We were alienated from God. And yet we have been reconciled to God. And once again, that comes through Christ Jesus. Then there's this passage in Romans 8, which to me is the heart. Right, if, you, if you ever wonder, okay, what is it that I believe? Right, if, if you're claiming to be a Christian this day, what is it that I believe? And one of these little phrases that I hear from time to time are these little elevator speeches. You know, you got 30 seconds with the person while you're going from one floor to the next floor, and you got to be able to explain your, 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 your product or whatever it might be or whatever your mission is. In many ways, here is your elevator speech. Romans 8. And Paul's talking about this thing about condemnation. And notice the process. We've gone from one thing to another. 
And what we like to latch on to is verses 37. And what we read is our scripture reading, which is very, very common. All right, when we get up, when we read this little section of Romans, we, li- we latch on to f- the 37 through 39. We are more than conquerors. When we sing songs, we are more than... But actually, what's really great is what happens. How did you become a conqueror? I was just born that way. You know, I woke up and I did my exercises and I did my spiritual disciplines and I made myself into a conqueror. I became a conqueror. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. What happened above is how you became a conqueror. Who is there to condemn you? Now, do I have any English teachers? I didn't have any athletes earlier. Nobody's raising their hand. Do I have an English teacher? Anybody want to claim? Do I have an English teacher at any level? Nobody wants to claim. Okay, nobody wants to claim. Okay, I got no English teachers in here. Right, so I'll do, I'll do the explaining myself. A little grammatical point. Does everybody know the difference between present and past tense? Do we understand tense? Pay attention. Take a look. Read carefully. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, past tense, right? But more than that, who was raised, once again, past tense. Now, have you ever found yourself saying or sort of musing to yourself, what has God done for me lately? Yeah, what is God? Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, roughly speaking, right? We can say just right at 2,000 years ago. What has God done lately? Did you read the rest of the story? Who is, present tense, all right? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is right at this moment interceding on your behalf? What has God done for you lately? At this very moment, Jesus Christ is at God's right hand. Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf. God has done something for you lately. He is doing something for you right now as we speak, as we are gathered together. He will be doing something for you five seconds from now, five minutes from now, five hours from now, five days from now, five months from now, five years from now. God will be doing something for you. What has God done for you lately? Go read Romans 8. He is constantly doing something for us. It never stops. It is ongoing. It is a service that is 24-7, 365. And there is, as the rest of the chapter goes on, nothing that can bring it to a stop. There is absolutely no power on earth that can stop this process. It is done. It is complete. And Jesus is not down here. He's up there. And it will keep on going. So that we come to a place like Romans 11, which does, once again, kind of do the both-and story. We were disobedient. That tends to be what human beings are. And we can't really justify ourselves. So what do we have to have? We don't want justice. I mean, yes, amongst each other, we try to perform some justice. What we got to have, and guess what? Exactly what we get is mercy. 
we were in the past disobedient. In the present, we are mercied. And it has to be that way. You know, there's a little prophetic book in the Old Testament where sometimes, you know, mercy is uh, kind of controversial. The prophetic book's called Jonah. And the prophet Jonah did not like God being merciful. Can you imagine that? Uh, that, you know, somebody would not want God to be merciful. Well, it's qualified because Jonah wanted to dictate to whom God would be merciful. So if it's me or us because we kind of like each other and we call each other brothers and sisters, that's all good. That's cool. But if it's somebody that you don't like so much, that's not cool. And Jonah had to learn the hard, hard lesson that God will show mercy to whom God will show mercy. And we do not dictate to God at all. We are recipients, therefore we should be praying for others, regardless of how we feel about them, to receive mercy as well. Because in the end, it's exactly what they're going to need. Which brings us to Romans 15. The final verse, so you can breathe your big sigh of relief here. We're near the end. And Paul's near the end of the book of Romans as well. And... uh, you know, we don't do a great job of memorizing things, but I would really like to encourage you to memorize Romans 15, 13 sometime. Just kind of take it with you wherever you go. Uh, just kind of be able to pull it out of your back pocket when need be. Uh, and to keep this in mind, because Paul has said all these things to get to this point. And uh, again, I'm going to point to my English and everything else. You see the phrasing. Hopefully you can tell that it's green on the screen, but everything else. So that, uh, that suggests purpose. There's a reason for all this. And you have a purpose. Now, I want you, hopefully, if you've been playing on iPhones and everything else while I've been going on, that's fine. That's just me speaking and everything else here. It really doesn't matter a bit. But for just a brief moment, can you close your eyes, put all the gadgets to the side, bow your head, and receive these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may lift your head. You have a purpose. You really, really do. That's what so that means. God has done all, God, you know, Jesus Christ is raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for you and there's a purpose for that. Uh, One writer that I've read recently kind of talks about the era in which we live as the disenchanted age. Disenchanted. All right, there's really no hope. There's There's no real, it's disenchanted. Paul says phooey. Fooey on that. And it's not because of us, but it's because of what God has done. 
And notice once again, and look at those words. And we could spend, I know I've got a clock back there. I'm, I'm keeping my eye on it here. We could spend a lot of time here because every single word, this is a loaded, loaded, loaded verse. God of hope. We serve a God who moves in the direction of hope. Who is filling us with joy and peace. But then there's that little middle line. Because the point is not to trust in yourself. Not to trust in anybody else. Look at that middle line. Very, those five little words. I think they're all you know, just one syllable each. They're not complicated words. Oh my, but they're the key to everything. They are the key to everything. As you trust in him. You don't trust yourself. Not, there's not a guru out there. You can listen to them. They might have some good words. Might have, you know, a preacher might occasionally say something. You know, every 10th Sunday might actually say something worthwhile listening to. It doesn't really matter. Because your trust is not in your preacher. Your trust is not in yourself. Your trust is not in science. Your trust is not in a political ideology. Your trust is not in a person. Your trust is in God. And because your trust is there, guess what? There's a result. And that result gives you purpose. You may overflow with hope. And if you don't think you can do it, God already understood that too. And when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus tell them? You know, it's actually a good thing I'm leaving you. Because when I leave you, what am I leaving behind? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you been listening carefully? You were redeemed by Christ Jesus. You can overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have not been left alone. We have not been left alone. We have redeemed by Jesus Christ. We may have hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, this is our story. And I have two questions for you. Do you even believe it? And if you do, will you live into it? Those are the questions. Do you even believe your own story? And will you live into that story that God has called each and every one of us into? May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace, all joy and peace, as you trust in him, so that you, in an age of disenchantment and despair, so that you may overflow with hope. And don't despair, because you can do so by the power of the Holy Spirit of God's very self. Grace and peace unto all of you.